You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 220, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Awake for the Sake of the Future. Twelve lectures, translated by Jan W. Gates. This is Lecture 3, entitled The Earth's Interior and Celestial Constellations in Relation to the Physical Human Being. Given in Dornach on January 7, 1923. Today, I would like to refer to the preceding lectures and then move forward using the results of spiritual scientific research to show how the human being is placed within the entire cosmos. I shall speak about the human being, first of all, by looking at the physical organization and then by considering what is called in spiritual research the etheric or life body, the astral body, and the organization of the I capital. But we will not understand the various aspects of the human being by merely enumerating them in sequence. For each of these elements is related to the cosmos in a different way. Only when we understand the ways in which the different elements of the human being are ordered within the cosmos will we be able to grasp the relationship of the human being as a whole to the universe. Observing a human being standing before us, we see that the four members of the human constitution are indistinguishably joined together and united in reciprocal interaction one with another. In order to understand them fully, we first must consider each one separately in its specific relationship to the cosmos. We shall accomplish this not by using an all-encompassing approach, but by observing them one by one from a specific point of view. Let us consider human beings in relation to everything that exists outside the body, all the physical surroundings that extend outward to the periphery of human perception. Here we find the outwardly visible human senses, yet we know by means of anthroposophic observation that we can reach certain kinds of human sense perception only by going beneath the outer surface of the body and entering the innermost aspect of the human being. Essentially, we have to look for these senses inside the body. These inner senses instruct us about their nature from our innermost aspect, although they do so in an unconscious way from their point of origin within the body. With regard to all that exists outside and surrounds the human being, we can say that the outer world is connected to the senses that are found on the outer surface of the human body. We need to consider only the most visible of the senses, for example the eye or ear, to discover that we receive impressions from the outside. It is necessary, of course, to confirm this by thorough, detailed observation and research, which, for some of the senses, 
we have already carried out in this very hall. But as the outer world presents itself to us in everyday life, we can already say that a sense organ such as the eye or ear perceives things through outer impressions. Our upright position in relation to the earth allows us to receive impressions of our surroundings along a horizontal plane. Even a more exact observation would show that what I have just said is absolutely correct. For if it seemed as though we could perceive something from another direction, it would be an illusion, a deception. Every direction through which a sense perception is transmitted lies in the horizontal, and by horizontal I mean a line that runs parallel to the surface of the earth. If we are standing on the earth, then the main direction for receiving sense perceptions is parallel with the earth. Along the direction of the slightly curving line of the earth's surface flow all our external perceptions. Through observation we can say that perceptions approach us from outside ourselves. Then they pass from the outer to the inner aspect of the human being. And what do we bring to these perceptions from within ourselves? We bring our thinking and our capacity for imagination to bear on these perceptions. Let this process pass before your eyes. When I perceive something through the eye, an impression comes from the outside, and the power of my thinking and imagination arise from within to meet it. From outside comes an impression when I look at a table. The fact that I can remember the table with the aid of an inner picture is due to my inner capacities of imagination and ideation. When we imagine a human being schematically, we see that the direction of perception moves from the outside to the inside. The direction of the idea or imagination moves from the inner toward the outer. What we envision through the eye relates to human perceptions during our everyday lives and is the way in which external earthly development reveals itself in our present era. It is what I have already identified as our ordinary consciousness today. However, if you explore anthroposophic literature, you will find that there are other possibilities for human consciousness than those that are readily available to us in everyday life. Now, try to create a picture of what can be perceived by the human being, even if it is only approximate and hazy. You see the colors present on the earth, hear sounds, feel the sensation of warmth, and so forth. You recreate the contours of what you have perceived so that you can fashion for yourself the things you have seen. Through everyday consciousness we learn to know what is in our surroundings. But there are other possibilities for consciousness that remain more or less unconscious for us today other possibilities that are pressed into the depths of the life of the soul. And yet these deeper levels of consciousness are of even greater significance 
than the states of consciousness that exhaust themselves in the processes I have mentioned thus far. For human beings living on earth, what lies beneath the surface of the earth is just as important as what encircles the earth. We can perceive what exists on the earth's periphery with our ordinary senses and grasp what we have perceived through our senses by the power of imagination and conceptualization. This constitutes the consciousness readily available to humanity. But now, let us consider the interior of the earth. At first glance, it appears that the interior of the earth conceals itself from ordinary human consciousness. Of course, we can dig into the earth to a certain depth, and within a cavity such as a mine, we can make observations, just as we do about the earth's surface. But that is no different than observing the corpse of a human being. Looking at a corpse, we see something that is no longer a fully human being. It is a residue of the human being. Indeed, if you look at this in the right way, you have to say that the corpse is the opposite of a human being. The true manifestation of earthly humanity is the living, moving human being, which is manifest physically in the bones, the muscles, and so forth, carried within the human being. The reality of a living human being encompasses the bony frame, the muscle structure, the nerve system, heart, lungs, and so forth. A corpse no longer corresponds to the human being. When I have a corpse before me, there is no need to have lungs, heart, or muscle system. Therefore these elements of the body disintegrate. The various parts of the body maintain the form required of them for a short time after death. But a corpse is actually an untruth. After death it cannot be maintained. The corpse must disintegrate. It is no longer a reality. Likewise, what I find in the interior of the earth when I dig below the earth's surface is not reality. The interior of the earth affects the human being in a different way than the earthly surroundings that we perceive through the outer senses. From the perspective of the soul, you have to say that the environment of the earth is worked upon and grasped through the ordinary senses of the human being, as well as through the thinking and imaginative capacities of ordinary consciousness. The interior of the earth works upon the human being not along a horizontal direction, but in a vertical movement from below to above. It goes right through the human being. Moreover, what works from below upward, from the interior of the earth, cannot be perceived in the way in which the outer senses perceive earthly surroundings. If the human being were to perceive the interior of the earth in the same way we perceive our normal earthly environment, then we would need a kind of eye or sense of touch that could penetrate the earth without digging a hole into it, that could pass through the earth as easily as we move a hand through air when we grasp something. When you look through the air, you do not have to carve a hole in it to do so. If you had to make a hole in the air before you could look at an object, 
It would be the same as insisting that you must dig a mine shaft in order to perceive the interior of the earth. But even if you do not need to dig a hole in the earth to perceive the earth's interior, you still would need to have a sense organ that could, in quotes, see without digging holes in the earth, or an organ that could perceive through feeling. Perceptions of the interior of the earth do not reach into the consciousness of the human being. Nevertheless, the perception of the earth's interior is conveyed through feeling. What is it that we can perceive within the core of the earth? Specifically, we can perceive the various metals of the earth. Recall now just how many metals are contained in the earth. Every day you perceive animals, plants, minerals, and a great many human-made things in the air surrounding you. Likewise, you perceive metals within the interior of the earth. The perceptions of metals, even if they were able to enter your consciousness, would not be material perceptions. They would come in the form of imaginations. Visual impressions come to the human being along the horizontal plane. The metals do not send forth visual perceptions. Rather, something from the inner nature of the minerals emanates upward through the human being and calls forth imaginations or pictures. The human being does not perceive these pictures. Instead, the imaginations grow dim. They are suppressed to a certain extent because our normal earthly consciousness does not perceive these imaginations. Therefore, the imaginations are dimmed until they are reduced to feelings. When, for example, you think about everything that has to do with the gold that exists in the crevices of the earth, your heart perceives a picture that corresponds to gold in the earth. However, this picture is an imagination that is not perceived by ordinary consciousness. It will be experienced only as a blunted yet living inner feeling, a feeling we are not able to articulate. The human being remains silent rather than expressing the perception of this picture corresponding to gold. This is also true for other organs in the body. The liver, for example, receives a certain picture of all that is tin in the interior of the earth and so forth. All these unconscious impressions are only experienced as an inner feeling. Perceptions from our physical surroundings come to us through the horizontal plane and are met with the power of our thinking and inner imagination. Likewise, when emanations from the metals flow upward from the earth's interior and pass right through the human being, there arises within us in response the dim consciousness of an inwardly living feeling. But at this point in the life of the earth, these human feelings remain chaotic and indistinct. We experience only an all-encompassing, life-imbued feeling. If we were given a true gift of imagination, we would know that we have a relationship to the metals in the earth. Actually, every human organ functions as a sense organ. Even if we use an organ primarily for another purpose, it still functions as a sense organ. 
just as our outer sense organs perceive, the inner organs also have a capacity to perceive. The human being is through and through a sense organ, and just as a complex being is differentiated in its individual sense organs, so individual inner organs also have specific functions. The human being receives the perception of metals from below, and this perception meets a corresponding living feeling within the human being. Our feelings provide a counterforce to the influences metals have upon the human being. It is parallel to the way our thinking and power of imagination counterbalance the effect of everything in our surroundings that is conveyed to us through sense perceptions. And just as we receive the influences of the metals from below, we also receive influences from above in the movement and form of the celestial bodies in the cosmos. We experience sense perceptions from our surroundings. And we also have a consciousness that receives inspiration from every planetary circuit and every constellation of the fixed stars. As our consciousness streams out in response to the influence of celestial bodies, it has the potential of becoming an inspired consciousness. Just as we allow the power of our thinking to flow outward toward our sense perceptions, we also allow a counterforce to stream outward into the cosmos to meet the inspiration of the moving planets and the impressions of the stars. This counterforce is the power of the will. What arises in our will when we take this inspired consciousness into account, we perceive as inspiration. When we study the human being in this manner, we see that with regard to our earthly consciousness, we are in a waking state in our sense perceptions and our corresponding thoughts and imaginations. Indeed, we are fully awake only in our life of the senses and in its counteractivity, thinking, when we stand within ordinary earthly consciousness. In contrast to this, our life of feeling is manifest only in a dreamlike state. Our feeling life is no more intense or enlightened than dreams, but dreams are made up of pictures, whereas our life of feeling, which is the soul constitution shaped by one's actual life, is made up of feeling. But the foundations of our feelings are generated by the effects of the metals of the earth upon human beings. Even deeper, even less clearly articulated, is our consciousness of the will. We simply do not know how the human will works. I have often described this situation. The human being has a thought, extends an arm, and grasps something with a hand. The thought can be grasped with one's waking consciousness. Then we see the act of grasping an object. But what lies between thought and deed? The penetration of the muscles by the will remains concealed from ordinary consciousness as if this act were experienced in a deep, dreamless sleep. In our feelings we dream. In our will we are asleep. But from the point of view of ordinary consciousness, this will that sleeps 
is precisely our response to the impressions coming toward us from the stars. Just as our thinking replies to the sense impressions in ordinary consciousness, and what we dream in our feelings is our answer to the influences of the metals within the earth. As earthly humans, when we are awake, we perceive the objects around us. Our capacity to think and imagine gives an answer to these sense impressions. To accomplish this, we use our physical and etheric bodies. Without our physicality or our etheric bodies, we could not develop our capacities for sense perception and for thinking, which work back and forth in a horizontal direction. And so with regard to our waking consciousness, we can say that the physical body and the etheric body are filled with our sense impressions and our thinking activity. During sleep, the astral body and the I, capital, are outside our physical and etheric bodies. The astral body and the I are the elements of the human being that receive impressions from below and from above. The astral body and the eye are asleep as they receive what streams upward from the metals in the earth and what streams downward from the movements of the planets and the constellations of the fixed stars. What becomes manifest in earthly surroundings from the horizontal direction has no influence on us during sleep. But the forces working upward from the interior of the earth and downward from the planets and fixed stars are the ones that work on us during the night. If you attempt to move from ordinary consciousness to an imaginative consciousness during this epoch in human development, then all of the human organs will be able to grasp this imaginative consciousness to the same extent. It is not so that just the heart would be affected by this consciousness. All organs would have to be equally stirred by this consciousness. I have already said that the heart perceives the gold that exists in the earth, but the heart in and of itself can never perceive gold. As long as the eye and the astral body are connected with the physical and the etheric bodies, as is the case for the human being in a normal state of wakefulness, the perception of gold can never become conscious. It is only when the eye and the astral body, as in the instance of true imagination, become to a certain extent independent of the physical and etheric bodies, that the astral body and the eye, in proximity to the heart, can perceive what streams forth from the metals within the earth. The center of perception that receives the emanations sent forth from the gold, lies within the astral body, located in the region of the heart. The heart is able to perceive because the portion of the astral body that belongs to the heart is the part of the body that perceives the gold. The physical organ itself does not perceive gold. Rather, it is the astral body that perceives it. If we are able to attain imaginative consciousness, then the entire astral body and the whole organization of the eye will be able to allow the segments of the astral body and the eye to perceive their corresponding physical organs. That is to say, the human being perceives the totality of metals in the earth, 
albeit with differentiations. We can perceive specific details and differences if we train ourselves and make it a particular goal of esoteric study to know the metals of the earth. This kind of knowledge is not something that should typically be sought by human beings in our era. An individual should not use this knowledge in a self-serving way. It is a universal principle that if a person wanted to use the knowledge of the metals of the earth for personal benefit, the imaginative capacity would be withdrawn. It is possible if a pathological condition occurs somewhere in the body, or if the connection between the astral body and the physical organs is interrupted, that the person may experience a light sleep during a waking state. Typically, when we sleep, the astral body and the eye draw apart from the physical and the etheric bodies. There is also a very light sleep, which individuals themselves barely notice, that may be present when a person is awake. This is very interesting to an observer because a person who is both asleep and awake at the same time may have a mysterious gaze and look somewhat, in quotes, mystical. This comes about because we may experience the presence of a very light sleep, even though we are wide awake. Indeed, the physical and etheric bodies are always vibrating back and forth in relation to the astral body and the organization of the eye. And people who experience the interaction of sleep and waking states may be able to locate metals within the earth. However, the ability to sense the presence of particular metals in the earth is accompanied by a certain level of illness. When this capacity is placed in the service of technology and the utilization of the earth's resources, it may not seem to matter to the beneficiaries whether or not these people who can detect the presence of metals in the earth are a little ill. We may not bother to look at the human cost of procuring a desired substance. But viewed inwardly and from a cosmic perspective, when we seek knowledge not merely from the horizontal plane of what surrounds us on earth, but also want to receive perceptions directly from the earth's interior, this will always result in illness. Those who work out of direct perception of the interior of the earth cannot report findings in a conventional way. When we pick up a pen and write something down, this comes from our thinking and portrays something that is lifeless. But this ordinary capacity of imagination dampens down or confuses a perception that arises from below. In that case, it is necessary to make or draw signs that are different from ones that we ordinarily write or speak, for we perceive particular metals in the earth in an inwardly ill state. I also would like to point out that water is a metal. People in the pathological state we have been describing can be trained not just unconsciously to perceive the existence of metals within the earth, but also to unconsciously make special signs. When you place a rod in the hand of one of these individuals, they make a sign with it. What does this indicate? 
It shows that there has been a slight interruption within the person between the eye and the astral body on the one hand and the physical body and etheric body on the other. Thus the person not only perceives what is nearby, but puts aside the usual perceptive capacities of the physical body, makes the entire body into a sense organ, and perceives the interior of the earth directly, without carving out a hole in its surface. But when this occurs within the province of the feeling life, one cannot express the imagination that corresponds to the perception from the earth's interior. The individual can only indicate perceptions by making signs rather than by expressing it in words. We also perceive what comes from above in a similar way. However, these perceptions have a different inner character. They do not correspond to the way we perceive metals in the earth through human feeling. Rather, our perception comes in the form of inspiration, which is reflected from the movements of the planets or the constellations of stars. We perceive what streams down from above just as we can perceive the interior of the earth. An abnormal condition occurs in this instance too, for the eye is loosened from the astral body. We perceive from above what the flow of time and what the differentiation between segments of time give to the cosmos. We see more deeply into world events, not only in the past, but also certain occurrences that flowed out of necessity from the world order rather than from the actions of free human will. In that situation we can see prophetically into the future, into the ordering of time itself. With these examples I wanted to indicate that a person may be able to heighten perception through certain pathological conditions. The healthy way to develop such capacities is through imagination and inspiration. We can differentiate healthy from unhealthy in this matter by looking at the following example. It is good for an ordinary person to have a normal sense of smell. A normal sense of smell allows us to perceive objects in our surroundings. But if someone has an abnormal sensitivity to a certain odor, that person can become ill in the presence of whatever emits the odor. There are people, for example, who become ill if they enter a room in which there is one single strawberry. They do not even have to eat the strawberry to feel sick. That is not an enviable situation. There could be situations in which a person with a heightened sensitivity to the smell of strawberries could identify the whereabouts of stolen strawberries or other stolen things that have a characteristic odor. They could be asked, for example, to use this unusual faculty in order to find stolen objects. If the human beings could sharpen a sense of smell as can be done with dogs, then the police would not need their police dogs. They could use instead human beings with a heightened sense of smell. But we must not do this. You will understand this when I say that the capacity to perceive what arises from below and what descends from above should not be used in the wrong way. 
developing these forms of perception and using them unwisely must be avoided, for doing so disturbs the entire organization of the human being. Training human metal detectors and human police dogs would not seem like a moral question to some entrepreneurs. Since we can receive these perceptions only in an abnormal or somewhat ill state, we should avoid the negative consequences of using these perceptions in the wrong way. You will be able to understand all of these things that at first seemed to come to you in a confused and clouded way, or even in an overly theoretical manner. Eventually, you will be able to see how these things can be evaluated in the light of our relation to the entire cosmos. That is one side of the matter. There is, however, a proper way to use these forms of knowledge. If you have attained imaginative knowledge, you must not use the feeling capacity of the astral body that is found near the heart to acquire gold for personal benefit. However, you may use this imaginative capacity in order to understand the structure, the true tasks, and the inner nature of the heart itself. You may use this capacity to enhance human self-knowledge. This also applies to the proper use of our physicality, for example, of the ability to smell or see and so forth. And so, we shall learn to know every organ of the human being as we discern each organ in relation to what we perceive from below and from above. You will learn to understand the heart when, on the one hand, you recognize the gold within the heart as it streams upward and can be perceived through the heart. Then, on the other hand, you will learn to recognize the stream of will coming from the sun above, that is to say, to understand the counter-streaming from the sun as a form of the will. And so you can bring together the effect of the sun streaming from above at the point at which it reaches its zenith, together with the perception of the streams emanating from gold in the interior of the earth. By allowing the gold content of the earth to lead to imagination, and the sun streams to awaken inspiration, you can achieve an understanding of the heart of the human being. You can attain a true understanding for the other organs in the same manner. If you wish to understand yourself fully as a human being, you must allow these two forms of knowledge, one from the depths of the earth and the other from the far reaches of the cosmos, to work upon you. Today we have touched upon our relationship to the cosmos in a more concrete way than I have ever done before. If you take the lectures that I recently gave about the understanding of nature during the course of modern history and recall my comments in yesterday's lecture, you will discover that what the human being receives from the current level of knowledge and the natural sciences is basically dead knowledge. You cannot even recognize yourself as you are in reality. Rather, you can recognize only what you are in death. A true knowledge of the human being will only come to fruition 
through recognition of the difference between organs after death and living organs in relation to what they receive from below and from above. To make that distinction, you must acquire knowledge in a state of full consciousness. Instinctive knowledge in former times came about because the astral body and the etheric body then were more closely connected than we can experience today. Today the human being, during earthly existence, can become a free human being. For that to occur, however, it is necessary that we recognize what is dead in the present, that we understand the foundation of the past that arises from the interior of the earth in its metallic aspect and that we acquaint ourselves with the life-generating effects coming from the stars and their constellations. And in every organ, a true understanding of the human being must be sought in its threefold nature, the dead or physical aspect, the foundation of life or the soul aspect, and the life-generating or the spiritual aspect. We must search everywhere, even within the smallest details of the human constitution, to discover the bodily physical, the soul nature, and the spiritual aspect. And the reasonable starting point must be drawn out of a correct evaluation of what we have previously understood as the results of natural science. It must be recognized that the contemporary state of the natural sciences everywhere leads to the earth's tomb and that we have to find our way back from the tomb and into the living. Thus, by taking facts into account, we can discover how modern spiritual science can bring life into the old forms of intuitions. The intuitions themselves have always been there. In the past few days, I have advised people who work in the most varied fields about any number of questions. For example, I advised literary historians who speak about Goetheanism to remain true to the intuitions Goethe described entitled Wilhelm Meister's Journeyman Years. There a woman appears in Book One who experiences the movement of the stars by means of an abnormal soul-spiritual state. Next to her stands an astronomer, juxtaposed to the woman who intuitively experiences the celestial realm is another woman, who has the capacity to experience metals in the earth through her feelings. Near her is Montanus, the miner and geologist. Montanus's intuitive knowledge of the interior of the earth was much deeper than the physical truths that had been described in the development of the natural sciences since the time of Goethe, even though the latter had been very substantial. For today, natural scientific knowledge belongs to the circumference of the earth's surface that lies easily within the grasp of the human being. Goethe, however, pointed out in Wilhelm Meister's Journeyman Years that the realms belonging to the human being also include the vast reaches of the stars above and the depths of the earth's interior below. Many things may still be discovered, both in the practical application of scientific knowledge and in the pure sciences. But these discoveries will be elevated to treasures of knowledge 
only when one takes what is offered through Gertianism just as seriously. Spiritual science also will play its role by illuminating more fully what we find as presentiment in Goethe, or by reformulating the intuitive knowledge that Goethe brings forward in the literary form of a novel. Anticipating connections that may bear fruit over time causes a certain historical rejoicing. I want to emphasize, however, that when we speak about the cultivation of scientific striving in the anthroposophical movement, and indeed it should be cultivated with great seriousness, anthroposophy should not succumb to the danger of being led astray by the contemporary disciplines of chemistry, physics, or physiology. Rather, the cultivation of the sciences in the stream of anthroposophic living knowledge should be brought into relationship with the specific scientific disciplines. Some would like to hear the chemist, physicist, physiologist, or physician speaking like an anthroposophist. That will not lead us forward. Nor will it be helpful if the individual specialists try to make anthroposophy speak in the languages of chemistry, physics, or physiology. That will only result in awakening opposition to anthroposophy. Whereas, we can move forward only when anthroposophy renders service to these specialists as anthroposophy, and not just as something that assumes anthroposophic terminology, or where scientific terminology is superimposed on what one already has in spiritual scientific knowledge. It does not matter whether anthroposophic language or another terminology is used for hydrogen or oxygen, or if we continue to use the old terms. The question is whether one adopts anthroposophy with one's entire being. Then one will become, in the right way, an anthroposophist as well as a chemist, physiologist, or physician. In this course I wished to present the history of natural scientific thinking, so that the knowledge of historical observations may bear fruit. For the anthroposophic movement urgently needs to be fruitfully engaged among the widest range of today's fields of knowledge. The end of Lecture 3